Audio number 67, Congregation of the Dead, part 48, Proverbs 21, 16. The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. O Lord, in wrath, remember mercy, Habakkuk 3, 2. The title of this message is God's War, the epicenter of all other wars. In previous messages, we have spoken much about the fact that original sin is sin, that the evil proclivities of our heart are sin and are to be repented over before they become an act of sin. And that our original sin is tied to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We as natural man Americans are all born into this world believing that the fig leaves of morality are our ticket into heaven. And until that idol is sent packing because it cannot eradicate the evil proclivities of our heart, thus cannot make us holy and fit for heaven. And the only way to be holy is to flee to the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith in which he fulfilled the moral law for us. Now, John Q. Public of America is a very simple man. He says to himself, where did the evil proclivities of our heart come from? What was the motivation behind the first murder? Who are the key players of this war that is at the epicenter of all other wars? These and hopefully many other questions that John Q. Public has will be answered in this message. Now let us commence with John Bunyan's testimony of his conversion, written in his book entitled Grace Abounding. We begin with paragraph 79. Sometimes I, John Bunyan, would tell my condition to the people of God, which, when they heard, they would pity me and would tell me of the promises. But they had as good have told me that I must reach the sun with my finger as have bidden me receive or rely on the promises. And as soon as I should have done it, all my sense and feeling were against me. And I saw I had an heart that would sin and that lay under a law that would condemn, paragraph 80. These things have often made me think of the child which farther brought to Christ, who, while he was yet coming to him, was thrown down by the devil, and also so rent and torn by him, that he lay down and wallowed, foaming, Luke chapter 9, verse 42, and Mark 9, 20. Paragraph 81, further in these days, I would find my heart to shut itself up against the Lord and against his holy word. I have found my unbelief to set, as it were, the shoulder to the door to keep him out. And that too, even then, when I have with many a bitter sigh cried, good Lord, break it open, Lord, Break these gates of brass and cut these bars of iron asunder. Psalm 107, verse 16. 
Yet that word would sometimes create in my heart a peaceable pause. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Isaiah 14, 5, paragraph 82. But all this while, as to the act of sinning, I was never more tender than now. My hinder parts were inward. I durst not take a pen or stick, though but so big as a straw, for my conscience now was sore and would smart at every touch. I could not tell how to speak my words for fear I should misplace them. Oh, how gingerly did I then go in all I did or said. I found myself as on a miry bog that shook if I did but stir and was as there left of both God and Christ and the spirit and all good things. Paragraph 83. But I observe, though I was such a great sinner before conversion, yet God never much charged the guilt of the sins of my ignorance upon me. Only he showed me I was lost if I had not Christ, because I had been a sinner. I saw that I wanted a perfect righteousness to present me without fault before God. And this righteousness was nowhere to be found, but in the person of Jesus Christ. Paragraph 84. But my original and inward pollution that that was my plague and affliction that I saw at a dreadful rate, always putting forth itself within me, that I had the guilt of to amazement. By reason of that, I was more loathsome in mine own eyes than was a toad. And I thought I was so in God's eyes too. Sin and corruption I said, would as naturally bubble out of my heart as water would bubble out of a fountain. I thought now that everyone had a better heart than I had. I could have changed heart with anybody. I thought none but the devil himself could equalize me in the inward wickedness and pollution of mine. I fell, therefore, at the sight of my own vileness deeply into despair. For I concluded that this condition that I was in could not stand with a state of grace. Sure, thought I, I am forsaken of God. Sure, I am given up to the devil and to a reprobate mind. And thus I continued a long while, even for some years together. Paragraph 85. While I was thus afflicted with the fears of mine own damnation, there were two things would make me wonder. The one was when I saw old people hunting after the things of this life, as if they should live here always. The other was when I found professors, that is, professing believers, much distressed and cast down, when they met with outward losses as of a husband or a wife or a child, etc. Lord, thought I, what ado is here about such little things as these? 
What seeking after carnal things by some and what grief in others for the loss of them. If they so much labor after and shed so many tears for things of this present life, how am I to be bemoaned, pitied, and prayed for? My soul is dying. My soul is damning. Were my soul but in a good condition, and were I but sure of it, ah, how rich should I esteem myself, though blessed, but with bread and water. I should count those but small afflictions and should bear them as little burdens. A wounded spirit, who can bear? Paragraph 86. And though I was much troubled and tossed and afflicted with the sight and sense and terror of my own wickedness, yet I was afraid to let this sight and sense go quite off my mind, that unless guilt of conscience was taken off the right way, that is, by the blood of Christ, a man grew rather worse for the loss of his trouble of mind than better. Wherefore, if my guilt lay hard upon me, then I should cry that the blood of Christ might take it off. And if it was going off without it, for the sense of sin would be sometimes as if it would die and go quite away, then I would also strive to fetch it upon my heart again by bringing the punishment of sin in hellfire upon my spirit and should cry, Lord, let it not go off my heart, but the right way by the blood of Christ and the application of thy mercy through him to my soul, for that scripture lay much upon me without shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And that which made me the more afraid of this was because I had seen some who, though when they were under wounds of conscience, would cry and pray, yet seeking rather present to ease from their trouble then pardon for their sin, cared not how they lost their guilt, so they got it out of their mind. Now, having got it off the wrong way, it was not sanctified unto them, but they grew harder and blinder and more wicked after their trouble. This made me afraid and made me cry to God the more that it might not so be with me. Paragraph 87. And now I was sorry that God had made me man, for I was feared I was a reprobate. I counted man as unconverted, the most doleful of all the creatures. Thus, being afflicted and tossed about my sad condition, I counted myself alone and above the most of men unblessed. Paragraph 88, yea, I thought it impossible that ever I should attain to so much goodness of heart as to thank God that he had made me man. Man indeed is the most noble by creation of all the creatures in the visible world, 
but by sin. He has made himself the most ignoble. The beasts and the birds and fishes, etc., I bless their condition. For they had not a sinful nature. They were not obnoxious to the wrath of God. They were not to go to hellfire after death. I could therefore have rejoiced had my condition been as any of theirs. Paragraph 89. In this condition, I went a great while, but when comforting time was come, I heard one preach a sermon on these words in the book of the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. But at that time he made these two words, my love, his chief and subject matter, from which after he had a little opened the text, he observed these several conclusions. Number one, that the church and so every saved soul is Christ's love when loveless. Number two, Christ's love without a cause. Number three, Christ's love when hated of the world. Number four, Christ's love when under temptation and under destruction. Number five, Christ's love from first to last, paragraph 90. But I got nothing by what he said at present, only when he came to the application of the fourth particular. This was the word he said. If it be so, that the saved soul is Christ's love, when under temptation and desertion, then poor tempted soul, when thou art assaulted and afflicted with temptations and the hidings of God's face, yet think on these two words, my love, still. Paragraph 91. So as I was going home, these words came again into my thoughts and I well remember as they came in, I said thus in my heart, what shall I get by thinking on these two words? This thought had no sooner passed through my heart, but these two words began thus to kindle in my spirit. Thou art my love. Thou art my dove. Twenty times together, and still as they ran in my mind, they waxed stronger and warmer and began to make me look up. But being as yet between hope and fear, I still replied in my heart, but is it true? Is it true? Yes, it is true. Thou art my love. Thou art my dove. Christ's experiential love towards us is greater than any human love. And we can easily say, Thou art my love. Thou art my dove. Keeping these thoughts of original sin in our mind and the unmatchable love of Jesus Christ, let us now commence with the message entitled, God's war and the introduction to the gospel tied up in the following verse genesis 3:15 and i god will put enmity that is hatred between thee satan and the woman eve and between 
thy seed, Satan, and her seed, Eve. It that will become known as Jesus shall bruise thy head, Satan, and thou, Satan, shall bruise his or Jesus' heel. God's war is at the epicenter of all other wars, or in other words, all other wars are tangential to God's war. In this verse is set forth the gospel in which the primitive believers put their hope. We find that God, as part of the curse, has put enmity or hatred between Eve and Satan and between Eve's seed and Satan's seed. This hatred is the genesis of all wars. The war begins in the first family, that is, the family of Adam and Eve, in which Cain, the older brother, murders his younger brother, Abel. But the question is, why did Cain murder Abel? If we understand the answer to this question, then we will understand the underpinnings of all other wars. Let us read this verse again and its surrounding verses. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, that is the devil or Satan, because thou, Satan, hast done this, deceived Adam and Eve, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly, shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Verse 15, And I, God, will put enmity or hatred between thee and the woman Eve, and between thy seed, Satan, and her seed, that is, Eve's seed. It which will become known as Jesus, it shall bruise thy head, Satan, and thou, Satan, shall bruise his heel, that is, Jesus' heel. Verse 16, Unto the woman God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he, your husband, shall rule over thee. Verse 17, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Verse 18. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Verse 19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. 
So again, in the following verse, unlike the fallen angels, we find the hope of a savior for some of the human race. But saving some of the human race will not happen apart from a spiritual war with a fierce enmity or hatred that God put between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. Genesis 3.15. Let us read it again. And I, God, will put enmity or hatred between thee, that is Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This spiritual war begins in the first family of Adam and Eve with their older son, Cain, murdering their younger son, Abel. Just think about that. Your older child murders the younger child. And for, for what reason? Again, the reason is the key to understanding God's war, which is at the epicenter of all other wars. And we will find the answer to this later in the message. God believes in individuals, family, and nations. Noah's three sons were instructed to make three separate nations. When man in Genesis 10 and 11 decided to go for a one world government to stop the one world government, God confused the languages in Genesis 10 and 11. So every time we think of different nations having different languages, it should remind us that God does not believe in the one world government movement. So each nation, each individual, each family is important to God. But we have found throughout history that nations eventually always morph into tyranny. But America was different. America was a nation which became a beacon of light, a beacon of freedom. So then we must ask the question, what was different about America? As we have spoken about many times, Martin Luther in 1517 ignited the Reformation, the bondage of the will doctrine Reformation. And America was the culmination of that Reformation. The pilgrims arrived in 1620 with the bondage of the will doctrine, 1630 the Puritans, Harvard was started in 1636, Yale in 1701, Princeton in 1740. All of these colleges were begun by pastors of the bondage of the will doctrine. And so the leaders of America went to these colleges. James Madison, who wrote most of our constitution and is called the father of our constitution, went to Princeton under the leadership of John Witherspoon, who was the president of Princeton and a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he himself was a pastor. In the 1700s, there was a great awakening under Pastor 
Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1635. And then the famous George Whitfield preached over 18,000 sermons from 1740 to 1770, preaching mostly in the fields with thousands and sometimes up to 20 to 30,000 people coming to listen to him. George Washington, John Adams, and our founding fathers were just kids or young adults during this time period that George Whitfield preached the bondage of the will doctrine. His face was almost as well known as George Washington. From 1620 up to 1830, the bondage of the will doctrine was dominant. The free will doctrine was alive, but there was tension between the two. But the bondage of the will doctrine was the dominant thinking. The bondage of the will doctrine produces a moral John Q. public because original sin is out on the front burner and every child is brought up knowing that the fountain of all evil exists in his own heart. And if our children know that the fountain of all evil exists in their own heart and their own heart can destroy them, it helps society greatly because we are way ahead of the curve by confessing our sins, that is the evil proclivities of our heart, before they become an act of sin. To live in a free society, we must be a self-governing people. But what are we to govern? In America today, we find that our youth are being brought up thinking freedom is to do whatever you want to do, which is just the opposite of what true freedom is. True freedom means that we are self-governing, means we govern our sin nature. If we govern our sin nature, then we will be moral. And if we are moral, then we are free. All our founding fathers knew this. And to get a feel for this, let us take some time, quite a bit of time, listening to our founding fathers speak of the importance of morality if we want to be free. And the fact that freedom isn't free. We must fight for that freedom. We must fight for that morality. Let us begin with John Adams. Quote, this constitution is written for a religious and moral people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. John Adams. And the next quote is by Samuel Adams. It is in the interest of tyrants to reduce the people to ignorance and vice for they cannot live in any country where virtue and knowledge prevail. Samuel Adams, born September 16, 1722, died October 2, 1803, was an American statesman, political philosopher, and a founding father of the United States. He was a politician in colonial Massachusetts, a leader of the movement that became the American Revolution, and one of the architects of the principles of American republicanism. 
that shaped the political culture of the United States. He was a second cousin to his fellow founding father, President John Adams. Another quote by Samuel Adams, No people will tamely surrender their liberties, nor can any be easily subdued. When knowledge is diffused and virtue is preserved, on the contrary, when people are universally ignorant and debauched in their manners, they will sink under their own weight without the aid of foreign invaders. Samuel Adams. Another quote by Samuel Adams, It does not take a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority, keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. And the next quote by George Washington, our first president, quote, Religion and morality are the indispensable supports to good government. And another quote by our second president, John Adams, man will either be governed by the Bible or the bayonet. And the next quote by James Madison, our fourth president, who is known as the father of our Constitution. Quote, we, that is us Americans, have staked the future of our civilization and all our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government, upon the capacity of each and every one of us Americans to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. And another quote by James Madison, If the people lack the virtue of self-government, their destiny will be despotism. The next set of quotes will be by Jedediah Morris, born August 23rd, 1761, died June 9th, 1826, in New Haven, Connecticut. He was an American congregational minister and geographer who was the author of the first textbook on American geography published in the United States. Geography Made Easy was the title in 1784. His first quote, To the kindly influence we owe that degree of civil freedom and political and social happiness which mankind now enjoys. In proportion, as the genuine effects of Christianity are diminished in a nation, in the same proportion will the people of that nation recede from the blessings of genuine freedom. I hold this to be truth confirmed by experience, and it follows that all efforts made to destroy the foundation of our holy religion ultimately tend to the subversion also of our political freedom and happiness. Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present Republican forms of government and all the blessings which flow from them must 
fall with them. Jedediah Morris. His second quote, let ministers and philosophers, statesmen and patriots unite their endeavors to renovate the age by impressing the minds of men with the importance of educating their little boys and girls, inculcating in the minds of the youth the love of their country, of instructing them in the art of self-government, and in short, leading them in the study and practice of the exalted virtues of the Christian system. Benjamin Rush's next quote, Unless we put medical freedom into the Constitution, the time will come when medicine will organize into an undercover dictatorship to restrict the art of healing to one class of men and deny equal privileges to the others. The Constitution of the Republic should make a special privilege for medical freedoms as well as religious freedoms. Benjamin Rush's next quote, if we were to remove the Bible from public schools, we would be wasting so much time punishing crimes and taking so little pains to prevent them. And his next quote, patriotism is as much a virtue as justice and is as necessary for the support of societies as natural affection is for the support of families. His next quote, freedom can exist only in the society of knowledge. Without learning, men are incapable of knowing their rights. His next quote, the only foundation for a republic is to be laid in religion. Without this, there can be no virtue. And without virtue, there can be no liberty. And liberty is the object and life of all Republican governments. His next quote, The great enemy of salvation of man, in my opinion, never invented a more effective means of limiting Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible at the schools. His next quote, I do not believe that the Constitution was the offspring of inspiration, but I am satisfied that it is as much the work of a divine providence as any of the miracles recorded in the Old and New Testament. His next quote, Let the children be carefully instructed in the principles and obligations of the Christian religion. This is the most essential part of education. And now a couple quotes by Patrick Henry, who was an American attorney, planter, politician, and orator. Also, he was the first and sixth post-colonial governor of Virginia from 1776 to 1779 and from 1784 to 1786. He is known for his famous speech, Give Me Liberty or Give Me death, which he gave to the Second Virginia Convention. His first quote, Constitution is not 
an instrument for the government to restrain the people. It is an instrument for the people to restrain the government, lest it come to dominate our lives and interests. And his next quote, Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. So hopefully it is abundantly clear that our founding fathers knew we must be a self-governing people. Self-governing to what? The father of our Constitution, James Madison, said self-governing according to the Ten Commandments. And that tyrants cannot find a footing when the population is taught in the principles of freedom and have applied virtue to their lives. But without the knowledge of what it means to be free and the application of virtue to our lives, we give tyrants a footing. And instead of we, the people, restraining the government, the tyrants use the government to restrain us. But the question remains, if we have over 300,000 or so churches in America today, why is there no morality? Why is morality out of control? The answer to that question is the nation is a reflection of the church. The free will church has been dominant for over a hundred years in America. And now we are seeing the fruit of the free will church upon the nation. God looks at the nation differently than he does the church. As a nation, that is, as American, God looks at our morality. The free will church preaches morality. And so why is there no morality? And the answer to that question is the doctrine of the free will church does not push and put on the front burner that original sin is sin. The nation is always lagging behind where the church is. If the church preaches sour, that is, that the original sin is sin, then the nation will be sweet and sour. In other words, the nation will be halfway reasonable, seeing some good and some evil in themselves. But the free will church can't preach that original sin is sin. So the free will church preaches sweet and sour. And when the free will church preaches sweet and sour, then the world or the nation lagging behind will lean towards teaching their children that they are sweet and wonderful. If we say to a child that you are sweet and wonderful, sweet and wonderful, sweet and wonderful, and then something goes wrong, the child says to himself, my father told me I was sweet and wonderful. It must be the other guy's fault. It can't be mine. And this is the beginning of communism. For tyranny can't exist apart from victimhood. Tyranny 
needs victims. And victims are those people that see themselves as sweet and wonderful. These people cannot go to sleep at night, that is, clear their conscience, unless they are blaming the sin that they have committed upon someone else. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 16. For they sleep not, that is, those people that see themselves as sweet and wonderful, for they sleep not, except they have done mischief, and their sleep is taken away, unless they cause some to fall. Verse 17. For they eat the bread of wickedness, and drink the wine of violence. But the bondage of the will, church, is not blaming the fast food free will theologian for the moral breakdown in America, because the fast food free will theologians cannot win the debate, as we have seen over and over in these messages. So who is the bondage of the will church blaming but themselves? for letting their foot off the accelerator and thus allowing the fast food free will preachers to overrun the country. God tells us that it is his people that need to repent and thus lead the country in repentance as Abraham Lincoln did. Amidst the civil war when he had lost battle after battle for two years. And then in January of 1863, he declared the Emancipation Proclamation. And then on April 30th, 1863, he had the entire country repent. And then Gettysburg came in July 1st to the 3rd in 1863. And there were like about 50,000 casualties in three days. But it was the turning point of the war. And Abraham Lincoln and his army saw two years of victories culminating in Robert E. Lee of the Confederate Army surrendering. On Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry of Jesus, and Abraham Lincoln being assassinated five days later on Good Friday. Think about that for just a moment. Now let us first hear from God that it is his people that should repent in order for God to heal America. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I, God, hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. In the book of Jonah, God commanded Jonah to go up to the Ninevites and tell them that they must repent. But Jonah did not want to do that because he hated the Ninevites and he was worried that they might repent and if they repented, then God might forgive them. 
And so he boarded a ship going in the opposite direction. But God caused a storm because of his sin. And the people on board the ship knew it was him that God was angry with. So they threw him overboard. And then God had him swallowed up by a fish. And then he vomited him up on the land. And he had to go preach to the Ninevites even though he did not want to. Let us pick up the story with the king having his people repent. Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. Verse 6. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Verse 7. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. Verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Verse 10. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Jonah 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Verse 2. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. So isn't this what we need in America today? A political leader or church leader to call us to repentance? Let us listen to Abraham Lincoln as on March 30th, 1863, he called the nation to a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Here is Abraham Lincoln's proclamation. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in the affairs of men and of nations, has by a resolution requested the President to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations, as well as of men, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgression in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance 
will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And insomuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do by this my proclamation designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. And this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of a divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. In witness whereof I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed done at the city of Washington in this 30th day of March, A.D. 1863, and of the independence of the United States, the 87th, Abraham Lincoln. So we see that Abraham 
Lincoln made it clear that nations are punished just as individuals are punished. So repentance in the life of the believer is essential. The true Christian's life is a life of repentance because the true Christian recognizes the evil proclivities of his heart. But a nation needs also to be repentant and our leaders need to lead us in repentance that God might forgive us as a nation. Let us pray that God will raise up an individual to lead America to repentance. Our founding fathers obviously knew that apart from morality and the knowledge of self-government, there would be no such thing as freedom in America. Freedom cannot be separated from virtue or morality. And virtue and morality also cannot be separated from repentance. It is through repentance that we acknowledge the evil proclivities of our heart before they become acts of sin. And by confessing the evil proclivities of our heart, we're way ahead of the curve because we're repenting before it actually becomes an act of sin, thus making our country moral. The immorality in America is so bad today that even the unchurched John Q. public are recognizing the moral meltdown of the most powerful nation in the world, America. Therefore, we ask one simple question. If tyranny has always been the norm for most nations, how is it that America became this beacon of light to the world? Therefore, to understand the moral meltdown of America, we must first ask how America became this beacon of light. If most nations, though their formation may have been driven by the best of intentions, eventually those high ideals morph into tyranny. However, our founding fathers in America knew the antidote to tyranny was what? Let us again quote, Samuel Adams, it is in the interest of tyrants to reduce the people to ignorance and vice, for they cannot live in any country where virtue and knowledge prevail. So we see that if we are a virtuous people as Americans and we're well educated in the principles of freedom, tyranny is not going to get a foothold. But if we look at America today, we see tyranny getting a foothold in every political institution. Our corporate businesses are becoming woke. Our public schools from kindergarten all the way up are being inundated with sexual deviancy programs and critical race theory and our schools are being dumbed down with groupthink which is simply the redistribution of the grade easier and easier curriculum and no child left behind simply means we lower the standards and do not flunk the student we just keep pushing them on into illiteracy 
And again, according to our founding fathers, why is this happening? We are no longer a virtuous people, nor a people where the principles of freedom are being taught across the board. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every day we turned on the news and each of these institutions that are now unraveling were now mending. Every time we turn on the news, we hear of another institution being restored to what our founding fathers intended them to be. That would be great news, would it not? So what is the one change that we could make that would make all of these institutions simultaneously rectified back to their original intent, slowly but surely? So what is that change? Let us start to figure this out by going back to God's war, which was presented in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, and I, God, will put enmity or hatred between thee, that is Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between thy seed, that is Satan's seed, and her seed, that is Eve's seed. It, which we will find out will be Jesus, shall bruise thy head, that is Satan's head, and thou, Satan, shalt bruise his heel, that is Jesus' heel. This war described in this verse resulted in a murder in the first family. That is, Cain, the older brother, murdered the younger brother, Abel. So John Q., Public of America, then asked the simple question, why in the world would Cain murder his brother? What would motivate him to do such a thing? Well, in order to figure this out, let us go back and review how Adam and Eve fell. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 26. And God said, let us, that would be the Trinity, let us make man in our image. Now, God was holy. So if they are going to make Adam in their image, they would have to make Adam holy. For Adam is to be a son of God. God is holy. Adam would have to be holy. Again, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now, John Q. Public of America, being a simple man, asked the simple question. How then did Adam become unholy? For when he became unholy, he was driven from the Garden of Eden by God. Genesis 
chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and Adam did eat. Verse 22, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Verse 24, So God drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So John Q. Public asked himself, what would Adam have to have done to remain in the Garden of Eden and thus remain holy? John Q. Public of America thinks a little to himself and says, if breaking one commandment made him unholy and he was driven from the Garden of Eden, then to remain holy, he would simply have to keep all God's commandments perfectly. So holy simply means to keep God's commandments perfectly. Therefore, for Adam to remain holy, he would have to keep his Father in Heaven's commandments perfectly. So then John Q. Public of America says to himself, we as Americans know we are liars by nature, and we cannot eradicate lying from our heart. Thus, we cannot become holy by attempting to follow the commands of God the best we can. That is, by our self-righteousness, we cannot make ourselves holy. Neither can we, by our fig leaves of morality, make ourselves holy. Therefore, we know there is nothing we can do to rid ourselves of a lying nature or any other lust like envy or fornication. It is part of our nature. So then John Q. Public of America thinks to himself that Adam was made in the image of God, and God is not a liar nor a murderer, for Cain murdered Abel. Where did this lying and murdering nature come from? Adam had full power not to lie or murder, for he was holy. How did he become a liar? So John Q. Public then remembers that Satan deceived Eve, and she ate of the forbidden fruit and didn't die immediately and found the fruit to be good, and Adam followed suit. So John Q. Public of America says to himself that Adam and Eve listened to Satan over God, and God then gave them over to Satan 
for they chose to follow his advice over God's commands. And thus Satan became their new spiritual father. And Adam and Eve took on his nature, that is, the likeness of his nature. John chapter 8, verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. They believed on him falsely. They thought they knew who he was, but they really didn't know who he was. As we have mentioned many times, our fast food free will friends know the Son of Man. They can follow all the things that he did, the miracles he performed. But they don't know the Son of God because no one can know the Son of God unless Jesus' Father reveals the spiritual Jesus to them. It takes being a new creation, a spiritual new creation, in order to see the spiritual Jesus. If we're not spiritual, we can't see the spiritual. And therefore, we do not know the true Jesus. So these Jews did not know the spiritual side of Jesus. Again, John 8, 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Verse 43, Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. They couldn't hear his word because they were not a new creation yet. Therefore, they were not spiritual. And therefore, they couldn't hear his word, which was spiritual. They could hear his word in the flesh, but they couldn't hear it spiritually speaking. Verse 44, Ye, you Jews, which say you believe on me, are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. Not my commands, but you are going to do the lust of your father, your spiritual father, which is Satan. Verse 44 again. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. I am the truth and I can assure you I do not abide in Satan like I do the true believers. Former Mr. Morality says in Galatians 2.20 that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But it is Christ that lives in me. So Christ lives in the true believer. But he does not obviously live in Satan. And therefore, there is no truth in Satan. Now back to John 8. When Satan speaketh a lie... He speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan is the father of lies. And we, as natural men Americans, are all born into this world as liars. And therefore, Satan is our spiritual father. Again, when 
Satan speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. Now, who is his own? Let us go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Former Mr. Morality, speaking to his Ephesian brethren, says this, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2, Where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, verse 3, among whom also we, that would be me and my Ephesian brethren, all had our conversation or lifestyle in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now let us listen again very closely to what former Mr. Morality says in verse 3, and then we will compare it to what Jesus says uh, about Satan. Verse 3 again, Among whom also we, that would be me, former Mr. Morality, and my Ephesian brethren, among whom also we all had our conversation, that is our lifestyle, in times past, that is before we were made a new creation, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Let's read it again. In times past, in the lust of our flesh, that is the evil proclivities of our heart, we, instead of forbidding those evil proclivities and repenting over those evil proclivities, we allowed those evil proclivities to become acts of sin. And we fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, let us compare that with what Jesus said about Satan. Verse 44, John 8, Ye, and he's talking to the Jews that believed on him falsely, ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. So these lusts, of the Father are the evil proclivities of our heart. They are the lust of our spiritual father, Satan. Satan was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in Satan. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. So he speaketh of his own, which would be all of us, before we are made a new creation. Jesus goes on in chapter 8, verse 45. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Now think about this. Jesus is the absolute truth. If Jesus tells one lie, 
He's no longer the truth. And when Jesus looks at us, he sees us the same way he sees himself. So if we tell one lie, he sees us as a liar with no truth in us. Whereas when we lie, we think there's some truth in us. But from his worldview, there is no truth in us. It's like a true-false test. If you can prove it false at any point, it's not true. So if we lie at any point, we're no longer the truth. From Jesus' worldview, we are 100% a liar with no truth in us. Verse 45 again. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not, because you're a liar. Verse 46. Which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? Verse 47, he that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. And that is because Satan is your father. So you're not, you're not of God. And until you're made a new creation, my Father in heaven has not yet revealed me to you. All you see is me in the flesh. You can't see the spiritual me because you yourself are not spiritual. So John Q. Public of America asked himself another simple question. Besides Adam and Eve now taking on the nature and likeness to Satan, did God penalize Satan for deceiving Eve and Eve for being deceived? great question, is it not? Genesis 3, verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all the cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. Verse 15. And I, God, will put enmity or hatred between thee, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between thy seed, Satan, and her seed, Eve. It, Jesus, shall bruise thy head, Satan, and thou, Satan, shall bruise Jesus' heel. But John Q. Public of America, after listening very carefully to verse 15, says, Who in the world is the seed of Satan? Who would be Satan's descendants? And so John Q. Public of America says, Let me listen again to that verse in John chapter 8. John 8, verse 31 then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil. So John Q. Public of America says that Jesus 
is admonishing those Jews which believed on him and tells them that their spiritual father is Satan. That is the devil. So our fast food free will friends say to us, Jesus is just speaking figuratively. We as natural men, Americans, are born into this world in the image of God. There is no way Satan could be our spiritual father. Our fast food free will friends have their talking points, and it is hard to get past their talking points to see what the verses are actually saying. Let us repeat again Ephesians chapter 2 to our fast food free will friends and tell them just to blank out what they have heard from their fast food free will friends or their pastor and try to listen to exactly what the scripture is saying. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you, that is my Ephesian brethren, hath he quickened, that is, made alive, made a new spiritual creation, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That is, you were dead to not only your acts of sin, but you were ignorant that your original sin was sin. But now, as a new creation, the evil proclivities of your heart have come alive to you, and you recognize that the fountain of all evil in this world flows right out of your own heart, that your acts of sin are nothing more than the black cat escaping from your evil heart in opposition to God. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2. Wherein in time past, that is, before you were made a new spiritual creation, that is, like I was as a fast food free will preacher before I became a new creation on Damascus Road. Verse 2. Wherein, in time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That is, before you were made a new creation, and then were adopted by Jesus' Father to be his Son, and then the Spirit of Christ was poured into you, and you became a Son of God. Before all of that, your father, before you were made a new creation, was Satan or the devil. And you were totally anti the true God or the true Jesus. Thus, you and all of us natural man Americans were born into this world as children of disobedience. Because we have a nature in likeness to Satan. And Satan is at amnity with Jesus. Satan hates Jesus. And thus, we all, as natural men Americans, hate the true Jesus. But we love the fake Jesus, the Jesus that fits the agenda of our evil proclivities of our heart. Again, among whom also we all had our conversation or lifestyle in times past in the lusts of our flesh. We did not live to the glory of God, for our father was Satan, and 
the evil proclivities of our heart were in likeness to Satan. For we were born into this world as liars, and Satan is the father of lies, a murderer by nature, and arrogant, etc. So, it is pretty clear, is it not? We as natural men Americans are born into this world with Satan as our spiritual father, and the lusts of our spiritual father we will do. For Satan is the father of lies, and since Satan has a lust to lie, we will do that same lust, for we are born into this world in likeness to our spiritual father, Satan, and his lusts. God is not a liar. So how in the world could we believe as natural men Americans that we are born into this world in the image of God? No, we are born into this world in the image of fallen Adam, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness, that is, in Adam's own likeness, after his image, that is, after Adam's image, and called his name Seth. So how much clearer can it be that we are not born into this world in the image of God, but in the image of fallen Adam? And fallen Adam has the lust of his spiritual father, Satan. It just can't be much clearer, can it? So the obvious question that John Q. Public now asks, why wouldn't our fast food free will friends want us to know that our sin nature is in likeness to Satan's sin nature? Why wouldn't our fast food free will friends put this on the front burner? And we know that it is not on the front burner because most of John Q. Public of America thinks we natural men Americans are born into this world in the image of God, when in reality we are born into this world in captivity to our spiritual father, Satan. Why wouldn't our fast food free will theologians want us to know that we are born into this world in captivity to Satan? Answer, our fast food free will theologians and friends don't put the fact that we are born into this world in captivity to Satan because it would destroy their free will doctrine. Satan is at enmity with Jesus. And are we as John Q. Public of America that naive to believe that with a free will pretty pleased with sugar on it, let me go, Satan? That Satan will say, sure. No problem. Just ask Jesus into your heart and all will be good. Or is Satan at enmity with Jesus? And Satan, the strong man armed, must be bound by one stronger than he in order that his goods may be spoiled. That is, that Jesus elect might be plucked out of his tight grip by Jesus. Dr. Luke chapter 11, verse 14. And Jesus was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, 
the dumb spake. And the people wondered, verse 15. But some of them said, he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. Verse 16. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. Verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. Verse 18. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. Verse 19. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. Verse 20. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. Verse 21. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, that would be Satan, his goods are in peace. Verse 22. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him, that would be Jesus, and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted, and then divideth his spoils. Satan is at enmity with Jesus. And are we as Americans that naive to believe that Satan is going to release us with a free will decision for Jesus? No. Common sense tells us that we are in captivity to Satan. We are in a spiritual war. But what again is the genesis of that spiritual war? And let us answer the question of why Cain murdered his brother Abel. What was going on that made this war the epicenter of all other wars? Before we begin to probe into this war, let us just think about the war that surrounds us. These are wars that are tangential to the spiritual war. Let us remember that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Satan is the father of lies. So where does murder come from? We know that Satan is the father of lies and that he was a murderer from the beginning and he was involved in deceiving Adam and Eve and then Cain murdered Abel and Satan is a murderer by nature and we took on Satan's nature and God gave to Moses the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai and he said thou shalt not kill. He's not going to say thou shalt not kill unless we have murder in our hearts. We couldn't murder if murder was not in our hearts. We are warned not to murder. Why? Because we are capable of murdering. In 2021, in America alone, there were about 20,000 
homicides. In the 20th century, notable estimate attempts include the following. In 1993, Brzezinski, former National Security Advisor to Jimmy Carter, wrote that the failed effort to build communism in the 20th century consumed the lives of almost 60 million people. World War II in the 1940s was the deadliest military conflict in history, an estimated total of 70 to 85 million people perished, or about 3% of the estimated 2.3 billion people on Earth in 1940. So it all began with Cain murdering Abel. And it is in understanding why Cain killed Abel that we then can come to understand the hidden spiritual war that is going on, hidden to all the unbelievers. So in order to understand this, let us go back again to the very beginning and to look at the symbolism of how Adam and Eve were made a new creation and then Abel was made a new creation, but Cain was not made a new creation. So let us go back to the time in which God first spoke to Adam and Eve after they fell. Genesis chapter three, verse four. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Verse 5, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, probably because Satan had taken a bite of the food himself and didn't die. Therefore, Eve thought she could also take a bite of the food and not die. Again, verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her. And Adam did eat, verse 7, and the eyes of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so the question is, how did they not know they were naked before they fell? And most likely because they were wrapped in the glory of God, and that they had died spiritually. Adam did not die physically until he was 930 years old. And the Lord said on the day that they ate, they would die. Well, the day they ate, they died spiritually. They lost fellowship with God and they lost the glory of God. So now what did they do? They wanted to cover up their nakedness with the fig leaves of morality. If we remember, Adam was under the covenant of works. Adam had to keep the commandments perfectly in order to remain holy, in order to remain in the Garden of Eden. 
So once he fell, he sees this nakedness. He feels this nakedness. And so now he wants again to try to follow the commandments. But the problem is he is now a liar by nature. And the fig leaves of morality can only cover over the fact that he is a liar, not eradicate it. How is this symbolized in the Bible? Verse 7 again. And the eyes of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they did what? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So they tried to cover up their nakedness with the fig leaves of morality. Every human born into this world, it is in their DNA to use the fig leaves of morality to cover over the evil proclivities of their heart as their ticket into heaven. Every human born into this world, it is in their DNA that the ticket into heaven is to do the best they can to cover over the evil in their heart. And then God will surely accept them into heaven. And this becomes their idol. And it is not until they hear the voice of Jesus calling them that they will know that Jesus can see right through their fig leaves of morality to their heart and that their heart thus is condemning them. And that is why they then need to seek the righteousness of Jesus Christ, Christ's fulfillment of the law for us. So now let us see what Adam and Eve's response is going to be. They have just put on the fig leaves of morality to cover their nakedness. And what next is going to happen? Verse 8. And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They realized at that moment in time that their fig leaves that they had covered their nakedness with did not make them holy again. They realized that God could see right through their fig leaves of morality to their nakedness. And so what did they do? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now, notice what they didn't do. They didn't say, here I am, and run to the Lord with repentance in their heart, crying out for mercy, lest the deeds of Adam and Eve be reproved. Now, we as natural man Americans are all born into this world in the same place that Adam and Eve are. We innately believe that our fig leaves of morality cover up the evil proclivities of our heart enough that it will be our ticket into heaven. And when anyone comes along and disturbs our ticket into heaven, that is our fig leaves of morality, we reject it for it ruffles the feathers of our security blanket. Now, let us listen to Jesus and, and see how Jesus' rebuke or reproof parallels Adam and Eve's experience. John chapter 3, 
verse 19, and Jesus is speaking these words. And this is the condemnation, that light, that would be Jesus, that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. And what did Adam and Eve do? But hide themselves from the presence of the Lord in the trees. Verse 19 again, with Jesus speaking. And this is the condemnation, that light, that would be me, Jesus, is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, rather than me, that is Jesus, because their deeds were evil. And why are their deeds evil? Because God demands perfection. And the fig leaves of morality cannot eradicate our sin nature. They can only cover it up. And that is why we need the righteousness of God by faith. That is, by faith, believe that Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us. Again, verse 19. And this is the condemnation that light, that would be me, Jesus, is coming to the world. And men love darkness rather than me, Jesus. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Verse 20, for everyone that doeth evil, anyone that does less than perfection, which I demand, because all of us are born into this world under the covenant of works, which is the covenant that Adam was before he fell. Adam had to keep the commandments perfectly in the Garden of Eden in order to stay in the Garden. We are all born into this world under the covenant of works, the same the same covenant of works that Adam was under before he fell. Verse 20 again. For everyone that doeth evil, which would mean all of us because none of us are perfect. Anything less than perfect is evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. They hate me. They hate Jesus for I am the light. Neither cometh to the light. They won't come to me. Adam and Eve did not come to me. Adam and Eve hid themselves from my presence in the trees. And why did they not come to me? Lest his deeds should be reproved. Verse 21, but he that doeth truth, and I, Jesus, am the absolute truth. I am 100% the truth. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light. That is me, Jesus. And why? In order that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And how are they wrought in God when we have faith in the righteousness of the second Adam? The second Adam did what the first Adam failed to do. The second Adam took on our original sin, was condemned to hell, and then fulfilled the moral law for us. Jesus, his father, could not have raised Jesus from the dead unless he had fulfilled the commandments here perfectly on earth. He who knew no sin, Jesus who knew no sin, was made original sin. Faith in the righteousness of God, as we have discussed in message after message, is our ticket into heaven. But we can't have that righteousness until we see the evilness of our own heart and that 
we condemn ourselves to hell, which won't happen until we are made a new creation and the Lord circumcises our heart. And then we are willing to condemn ourselves because we see our heart as our Lord sees us. And thus we are humble enough that Jesus might impute his righteousness to us. For when we are out there witnessing the prostitute and Mr. Morality of America both have the same heart. We all have the same evil heart. Some of us are just better at morality than others. We all need the righteousness of God by faith. Now let us go back to Adam and Eve, and God is going to call out to Adam and Eve, and let us notice how similar that their experience is to what the experience that Jesus describes in John chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Now God knew where Adam and Eve were. God did not say, I know where you're at, Adam. Quit hiding from me. Come on out. No, God was going to make Adam explain himself. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And God wants us to explain ourselves. God wants us to come in repentance to him. But Adam is not going to repent. And neither is Eve. They are going to play the blame game. There is nothing new under the sun. Verse 9 again. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Verse 10. And Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 11, And God said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? When Adam heard the voice of God, just as when former Mr. Morality heard the voice of Jesus speak to him from the air, the man that he thought he had helped crucify spoke to him from the air. And Jesus says to him, it's hard to kick against the pricks. That is, it's hard to kick against the bondage of the will doctrine that the Christians have been preaching to you that you were persecuting. Now let us turn to former Mr. Morality's experience with Jesus and notice how similar it is to the experience that Adam and Eve had. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. And Saul, that is former Mr. Morality, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, verse 2, and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem, verse 3. And as Saul, that is, former Mr. Morality, journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Verse 4, And Saul fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, and this is Jesus speaking, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Verse 5, 
And Saul said, Who art thou, Lord? Notice that Saul called him Lord. He would have never called him Lord before. He hated him. But now he heard the voice, just like Adam heard the voice, and he knew that he was alive and not dead like he thought he was. Again, verse 5. And Saul said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Saul, trembling and astonished, said to him, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Now back to Adam and Eve. Verse 10. And he said, that is, Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 11. And the Lord said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Now, Adam knew that God had told him in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you would die. Well, Adam didn't die physically until he was 930 years old. But on the day he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was driven from the garden and he lost fellowship with God. He had died spiritually and he had lost the presence of the glory of God. And instead of repenting, resorted to the fig leaves of morality to cover up his nakedness or the evil proclivities of his heart, which were in likeness to Satan who had deceived him. He broke God's command and listened to Satan, and therefore God gave him over to Satan to be his new spiritual father. So God knew that Adam knew he was naked because he had broken the commandment of God and eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what do we think that God is going to say next? Verse 11 again. And God said, that is the Lord said, Who told thee, Adam, that thou wast naked? Again, Adam knew he was naked because he knew he broke God's commandments. That's how he got naked. And so what is the Lord going to say to Adam? Let's find out. Adam, hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Now, what as natural men of Americans are we supposed to do if we break one of God's commandments? Should we not fall down before the Lord Jesus crying out for mercy? in hopes that our Lord would forgive us? Is that what Adam is going to do? Or is Adam going to resort to the blame game? Verse 12, And the man said, that is, Adam said, The woman, my wife Eve, whom thou gavest to be with me. Adam blames God. She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Does this sound familiar to all of us natural man Americans? 
Why, certainly it does. How many of us Natural Man Americans are taking the blame for the collapse of our family, resulting eventually in a divorce? Or how many natural women Americans going out and freely fornicating in defiance of God's commands get pregnant and then repent? Probably not many in today's world, but rather out of convenience would rather terminate a child's life, breaking another of God's commands. Thou shalt not kill. So what do we think that Eve is going to say when she is confronted? Verse 13. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent, Satan, beguiled me, and I did eat. So now we know where the blame game comes from. Right from our first parents. Again, let us listen to see how similar this is to what Jesus says. John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation. This is Jesus speaking. That the light, that is me, Jesus, is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. That is, men love darkness rather than me. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Anything less than perfect is evil. Verse 20, for everyone that doeth evil keeps on hating the light, keeps on hating me, neither cometh to the light, neither cometh to me, Jesus, who is the absolute truth. And why don't they want to come to me? Lest his Deeds should be reproved. Adam hid himself from the presence of God in the trees. And that is what we all do in America today. We are all hiding ourselves from the true Jesus, from the absolute truth. Why? Because we will be reproved by him just like Adam and Eve were. Now back to Adam and Eve. Let us now find out what the Lord is going to do to Satan. Verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, that is Satan, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all the cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. So at this point, we have heard nothing about redemption. It appears that Adam and Eve are just like the fallen angels. Once they fell, they fell. There was going to be no redemption. But the Lord God now surprisingly comes up with the plan of redemption in the next verse. Verse 15. And I, God, will put enmity or hatred between thee, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between thy seed, Satan, and her seed, Eve, it, which will become Jesus, shall bruise thy head, Satan, and thou, Satan, shalt bruise Jesus' heel. Therefore, we have so far learned that 
all of us Americans are born into this world with Satan as our spiritual father. And thus, we as natural man Americans are all born into this world in captivity to Satan. And Satan has a strong grip upon us, an unbreakable grip. Satan is the strong man armed, and he has his armor. But it takes a man stronger than him, Jesus, to come in and take his armor from him and then divide the spoils. The spoils happen to be the elect who were chosen before the foundation of the world in a covenant made between the Father and the Son, Jesus. So Jesus is going to bruise Satan's head. And all Satan can do is bruise Jesus' heel and bruise the elect by persecuting the elect as former Mr. Morality did before Jesus revealed himself to him on Damascus Road. Now the elect don't know they are of the elect. None of us natural men Americans know whether or not we are of the elect. For the apostle Paul did not know. I mean, he was one of the worst persecutors of the church. The thief on the cross did not know. Zacchaeus, who worked for the Romans as a tax collector and tax cheat, came out of curiosity to see who Jesus was, but he was too short to see over the crowd, so he climbed up in a sycamore tree and Jesus called him. He had no idea he was one of the elect. And neither do any of us as Americans know whether we're of the elect until we are elected. Now, Satan is a murderer by nature, a liar by nature, and God put enmity or hatred between himself and Jesus, who would be the stronger man who would bind the strong man arm, take away his armor and pluck his elect from him. Satan knows he is going to hell. Satan hates Jesus. Therefore, he also hates the elect who were chosen before the foundation of the world. Now we can speculate here and say to ourselves that maybe Satan, since he knew there was no redemption for him, caused him to have even more hatred towards the elect because he knew that they were going to have redemption and he could not have any redemption. And thus the hatred was even more. Now that's strictly speculation. The bottom line is that Satan hates Jesus and thus hates the elect as part of the curse for Adam sinning and breaking God's commandment. God has put this hatred between Jesus and Satan as part of the curse. And not only will the whole human race suffer, but Jesus himself will even have a greater suffering for he will be made our original sin and take on hell for the elect. If we just look at the human condition and see all the pain and suffering that people go through, it should put the fear of God in us because one commandment was broken and that brought all of this upon us because Adam was our federal head. Adam 
was our representative. And when Adam fell, we all fell. Some of us might be thinking that we could do better, but maybe we should think again. Really? You think any of us would have done any better than Adam did? So now, hopefully, we as natural men Americans are beginning to see that this spiritual war between Satan and Jesus is the war that is at the epicenter of all other wars. When Jesus finds his last elect, all this suffering will come to an end, at least for the elect. But for those who did not find salvation in Christ, their suffering is just beginning. Some of us natural men, Americans, may be thinking there just can't be a hell. It just seems too far out. But just think about this. Would you ever have believed, or would even Adam ever have believed, that breaking one commandment would cause all this hell and misery that we as humans go through, that all of us will die physically because we have broken God's commandment. And if we do not find salvation in Jesus Christ, then our souls will experience an eternal death, not eternal life. So at this point in the story, we see that Adam and Eve were still into the blame game. But in Genesis 3.15, our Lord gives them the promise of salvation. Let us repeat that verse again. Genesis 3.15. And I, God, will put enmity or hatred between thee, Satan, and the woman, that is, Eve. And between thy seed, Satan, which all of us natural men Americans are born into this world with Satan as our spiritual father. So we are all the seed of Satan, including the elect, until the elect are delivered from Satan by Jesus. Verse 15 again, And I, God, will put enmity or hatred between thee, Satan, and the woman, and between thy seed, Satan, and her seed. It, which will become Jesus, shall bruise thy head, Satan, and thou, Satan, shall bruise his or Jesus' heel. And now more of the curse that is going to be put on the woman. Verse 16, and unto the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and thy husband shall rule over thee. Now that is why in the New Testament the woman is to submit to the husband. Now the further curse put upon the man. Verse 17, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow 
shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Verse 18, thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Verse 19, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Now there is eternal death and eternal life. If Eve is the mother of all living, we assume that she is the mother of those that are going to receive eternal life. The seed of the woman was Jesus, and Jesus was going to save the elect. So Eve, being the mother of the living, could only happen through Jesus giving eternal life to the children of promise. That is, the promise made between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world to save some, which are called the elect. Jesus refers to this in one of his last prayers before he was crucified in John 17, verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son in order that thy son also may glorify thee. Verse 2, as thou, Father, hast given him, that would be me, Jesus, power over all flesh, that he, Jesus, should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Thou, Father, hath given Jesus, that is, before the foundation of the world. Verse 9, I, Jesus, pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And what is Jesus' mission here on earth? John 6, verse 37, All that the Father giveth me, shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. Verse 38, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but to do the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, that is, before the foundation of the world, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Now, Fisherman Peter, speaking also of Jesus' mission here on earth, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years 
as one day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But the Lord is long-suffering to usward, that is, to the ones that were given to Jesus by his Father before the foundation of the world, to the elect. But the Lord is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that all the elect, all the ones that were given to me before the foundation of the world shall come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Verse 12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. The only way we can be blameless is to have Jesus impute his perfect righteousness to us by faith. Now, back to Adam and Eve, verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, those of you that have been listening to these messages know that the fig leaves of morality will not get us to heaven because the fig leaves of morality cannot make us holy. The only way to be holy is to have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is, that the second Adam would do what the first Adam failed to do. The second Adam would fulfill the commandments, that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law for us. Now, we have also learned that when Jesus fulfilled the commandments for us, it included both his passive obedience and his active obedience, which is called the righteousness of God. We also know that this righteousness of God is called the wedding garment, or other times called the robe of righteousness. The whole idea is that when our Father in Heaven looks down at his saints, that is the true believers, he sees the saints wrapped in Jesus' robe of righteousness. And he sees Jesus' obedience as our own personal obedience. But at, on the other hand, we can only see the wickedness of our own heart. But faith is defined to be the certainty of the things not seen. Why are they not seen? Because they're hidden. What are they hidden behind? They're hidden behind their opposite. So all we can see is the opposite of the righteousness of God, which is our sin nature, the evil proclivities of our heart. 
And thus we are thrown to the feet of Jesus, crying out for mercy, that we might hunger and thirst for that righteousness and then be filled with the love of God. So the righteousness of God is in some scriptures called the robe of righteousness. Let us look to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Verse 11, for as the earth bringeth forth her bud and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. So we see here that the righteousness of God is called the robe of righteousness. Now with that, let us go to the next verse concerning Adam and Eve. Genesis 3:21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now up until this point, no animals had been sacrificed or killed. So in order to make coats for them, God would had to have sacrificed an animal. This animal that would be sacrificed would represent the coming Messiah, or the coming Savior, which would be Jesus. And so when the Lord God made coats of skins and clothed Adam and Eve, that is a picture that he was clothing them in the righteousness of God which they would have to believe by faith was their ticket into heaven. Verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. Now, before Adam fell, he knew no evil. He only knew good. And good in God's world is perfect. Adam had to keep the commandments perfectly in order to stay in the Garden of Eden. So he knew no evil. But the moment that he fell, now he knew evil, but he knew no good. For now there was no good in him. In Matthew 19, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers the first good a good master first. He says, it's interesting that you called me good for only God is good. So if you are calling me good, I must be God. So Adam and Eve now only knew evil. The only thing was good would have been the Savior and his righteousness, not our own self-righteousness. Genesis chapter 22 again. And the Lord God said, behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Verse 24, So he drove out the man 
and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So hopefully we are now beginning to understand the spiritual war, the hatred between Jesus and Satan and the amount of hatred that Satan has for the elect. And that is the genesis. That is the epicenter of all the wars that go on in this country. Ultimately, Satan is trying to destroy all the elect. And that is why Cain murdered Abel, because Abel was elected and Cain wasn't. Abel brought a sacrificial lamb looking to the righteousness of Jesus Christ for his salvation, and Cain brought the fig leaves of morality and thus never obtained eternal life because the fig leaves of morality will never give us eternal life. Let us look to Fisherman John who explains this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, verse 12, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, that is Satan, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil. Anything less than perfect is evil and not righteous, and his brother's righteous. So Cain was born into this world just like all of us natural Americans are. We are born into this world with Satan as our spiritual father. Satan hates Jesus. Satan hates the elect. Jesus called Abel and made him a new creation and imputed his perfect righteousness to him as a gift. Now let us listen to former Mr. Morality speak about the righteousness of God. And he is the last guy that would have ever spoken about the righteousness of God because he was a big time fast food free will moralist. He himself says, if you think you were moral, listen, I was more moral, which can be found in Philippians chapter three. Now let us look to Romans chapter five. This is a letter that he wrote to the church in Rome, describing how sin came into the world and then how Jesus provided for us the gift of the righteousness of God as our ticket into heaven. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, that is Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. Verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift, which we will find out is the righteousness of God by faith. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is the righteousness of God, 
which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. Verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, that is condemnation to hell, even so, by the righteousness of one, that is of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the second Adam, and he fulfilled the moral law for us, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift, that is the righteousness of God, came upon all men unto justification of life. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteousness. They will be wrapped in that lovely robe of righteousness. So when our Father in heaven looks down from heaven, he sees his son's obedience as our obedience. And thus we are innocent in his courtroom and blameless before his law and thus holy. But on the other hand, all we can see the evilness of our sin nature and then we must look to the righteousness of God by faith. In our last message, we spoke about Abraham and Sarah waiting for over 30 years by faith to receive the promised child Isaac. But in the midst of that, about 16 years into that, they got frustrated. And so Sarah suggested that possibly the promised child would come through her servant, Hagar. So Abraham married Hagar and Ishmael was conceived and God was not happy. And then Ishmael began to persecute Isaac. And so God instructed Abraham to cast out the bondwoman and her son, cast out Hagar and her son Ishmael. So again, here we see Isaac as one of the elect, believing in the righteousness of God, and Ishmael as one of the non-elect, believing still in the fig leaves of morality. And so the battle rages again in Abraham's family. Then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is one of the elect, and Jacob's twin brother Esau is not one of the elect, and Esau eventually wants to kill his brother Jacob. Hopefully now you have a pretty good idea of what the spiritual battle is that is at the epicenter of all other battles. It is Satan persecuting Jesus and his elect. If you think about World War II, Hitler almost took over the world. And anybody that would stand up to Hitler was murdered. So if Hitler had taken over the world, Satan would have had a heyday because Satan would have known that the elect would never bow to Hitler. And thus he, in one full swoop, could annihilate the elect. So now let us listen to the man who originally thought election was foolishness. The apostle Paul hated Jesus Christ. He was one of the elect, but he hated Jesus Christ because he didn't know he was one of the elect. He was above his equals as a fast food free will preacher. And the last thing in his mind was 
that there was such a thing as election. But here in the book of Romans, chapter 9, he speaks of this election. So without hardly any commentary, let us listen to former Mr. Morality, who is the last one who had ever thought there was such a thing as election. Now he speaks of election because he himself was elected and he knows he was elected and he knows he had no fingerprints on his salvation. Romans chapter 9 verse 10 and he is going to speak about the twin brothers Esau and Jacob and that Jacob was chosen before the foundation of the world in order to show that there was such a thing as election. Verse 10 and not only this, but when Rebekah, she was the mother of the two twins, Jacob and Esau. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. Verse 11, for the children, Esau and Jacob, they were twins, were the children, Jacob and Esau, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, not by the fig leaves of morality, but of him that calleth, that's the effectual calling. That is when Jesus' Father in heaven reveals his Son to us as he did Paul on Damascus Road. Verse 12. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. Verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, that is very difficult for a lot of people. But the question is, why did he love Jacob? For Jacob was just as evil as Esau. We all have the same heart. But that's the way election works. And he goes on to hopefully answer some of our questions. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? How can that be? Is God unfair? Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Verse 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 16. So then it is not of him that willeth. It is not by our own free will that we choose Jesus as our fast food free will friends tell us. In verse 16. So then it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth but of God that showeth mercy. We have no fingerprints on our salvation. It is God that decides who he is going to have mercy on and who he is not going to have mercy on. Verse 17, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, 
Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up. That is, he raised Pharaoh up, made him one of the most powerful men in the world. I have raised thee up in order that I might show my power, God's power, in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. And what happened? God delivered the two and a half million Jews and they went through the Red Sea. And we all know about the Red Sea opening, do we not? Verse 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will. He hardens. Verse 19, Now, former Mr. Morale knows you're going to complain about this. This just doesn't seem fair. Verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? How can you find fault on Esau if he never had a choice? How can you find fault on Cain if he never had a chance? It was predetermined before the foundation of the world. Verse 19 again. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will. Can we accept or reject Jesus? Can we control our natural birth? Can we control our death? What makes us think that we can control our spiritual birth? The word born Jesus used indicates that there is no control over the spiritual birth because we think of our natural birth. We don't have any control over our natural birth. Verse 19, again, thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Verse 20, nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it? Why hast thou made me? Verse 21, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another vessel unto dishonor. Verse 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. That would be the non-elect, the ones that were not chosen before the foundation of the world. Verse 22 again. And what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, that is, before the foundation of the world, verse 23, and that God might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, that is, before the foundation of the world. Verse 24, even us, that would include me, former Mr. Morality, and my Gentile brethren in Rome. Even us, whom he hath called. That is, Jesus' Father in heaven hath revealed his Son unto the elect when they are effectually called. 
in such a way that they know they have no fingerprints on their salvation. Verse 24 again, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Verse 25, as he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. And verse 27, and in Isaiah also crieth concerning, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Verse 28, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. So in terms of America, what have we learned? We have learned over the last few messages that original sin is sin. And the fountain from which all evil flows in this world comes right out of our own heart. Secondly, we have learned in this message that as natural men Americans, we are born into this world with Satan as our spiritual father. And that we are liars by nature. Satan is a liar by nature. We have murder in our heart and Satan was a murderer from the beginning and the lust of Satan we will do and since Satan is our spiritual father we are also in bondage to Satan we are in captivity to Satan and God has put enmity between Satan and the woman's seed, which is the elect, which without Jesus, there is no elect. So there is enmity between Satan and Jesus. There is a hatred. There is no way with a pretty please with sugar on it that Satan is going to let us make a free will decision for Jesus. The only way we are going to be released from Satan, the strong man armed with his armor, is to have a stronger man come in and bind him and divide up the spoil. That is, release the elect. And Jesus happens to be the man that is stronger than Satan. Therefore, because original sin is sin and our heart is as evil as it is, there is no way that we will make a free will decision for Jesus for our heart is totally depraved. Our sin nature is in likeness to Satan's nature, and Satan hates Jesus. So there's no way we will choose Jesus. And even the Apostle Paul in the Romans chapter 3 says, no man will seek after Jesus. That is the true Jesus. They will only seek after the fake Jesus. So if we will not choose Jesus, what good is our free will going to do us? Secondly, we are in captivity to Satan, and there's no way by his free will... He will release the elect to Jesus, for he's trying to destroy the elect. That is the epicenter or the underpinnings of all wars that go on in this world. So now as Americans, when we're bringing up our children, we tell them that they have a sin nature that will destroy them if they do not keep their sin nature in check through repentance. 
And secondly, as Americans, we explain to our children the spiritual war that is going on and that our sin nature is in likeness to Satan's sin nature and that we are in captivity to Satan and that we need to agonize to enter in at the straight gate for many will seek to enter in but will not be able to and that heaven allows for violence and the violent take heaven by force we're to do everything we can we tell our children to get through straight as a gate and narrow as a way before we die physically that is that jesus will effectually call us and come in and bind the strong man and then make us a new creation that we might see spiritually that we now not only know the son of man but to know the son of god now how many of us john q public of america know these two simple facts that the fountain of all evil in this world flows right out of our own heart and that we are born into this world in captivity to satan amidst a spiritual war in which satan hates jesus and not only had jesus persecuted but he continues to this day having jesus elect persecuted how many of us john q public are aware that we are born into this world hating the true jesus why are we hating the true jesus because satan is our spiritual father and satan hates jesus therefore we hate the true jesus now we love the fake jesus but we hate the true jesus in america today probably about 90 percent of us john q public of america know that god is love why because our fast food free will preachers have put that on the front burner and they have heard about it through the trickle down effect now what if our bondage of the will preachers put on the front burner that we are all born into this world with an evil heart it is so evil that the fountain of all evil that flows in this world comes right out of our own heart and our children's heart and then our bondage of the will preachers put on the front burner that all of us are born into this world in a spiritual war and satan our fierce enemy has us in captivity and not only does he have us in captivity but we have the same lust that he has and so instead of loving jesus we're hating jesus because our spiritual father satan hates jesus and wants to destroy jesus and again the apostle paul is a prime example of this as a fast food free will preacher he was part of satan's spiritual army in trying to destroy jesus and the elect therefore hopefully it is becoming more and more clear that how we see ourselves will influence how we see our children and thus how we discipline them and encourage them on the back of our american coin it is written e pluribus unum out of the many one which means that each of our children have unique talents and therefore each 
of our children must nurture their own uniqueness. But on the other hand, we must teach them that the fountain of all evil flows right out of their own heart. And they must learn to put the evil proclivities of their heart in check in order that their unique talents might flourish. How many of us know children that have gotten caught in drugs or alcohol or sexual deviancy and it has ruined their life and they never reached their potential? John Q. Public of America asks simple questions. First, why in America do our public schools no longer believe in using corporal punishment in order to control the students? From 1620, when the pilgrims arrived, up till about 1970, corporal punishment was normal. But now our public schools and more and more of our parents are drugging their children with Prozac and Ritalin rather than using the paddle. Does God instruct us to use drugs to control our children? Or does God command us to do the following? Proverbs 23, 13. Withhold not correction from the child. For if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Verse 14. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and thou shalt deliver his soul from hell. Whose advice should we take? The school's advice? The doctor's advice? Or God's advice? God knows that the evil proclivities of our heart is where the fountain of all evil flows from in this world, and he commands us to use the paddle because our evil sin nature is dangerous. We are not to numb our children's conscience with drugs, but use the paddle to wake him up that he himself must learn to control these evil proclivities through repentance. Number two, John Q. Public asks, why in our public schools do we no longer flunk students and hold them back a year when they are behind. When up to around 1970, that was the status quo for over 300 years. Holding them back is not going to ruin their talents, but it is a wake-up call that they must stay ahead of the curve. If they're having trouble in school, they must study harder so they don't get behind. Holding them back allows them to catch up and to be reminded never to get behind again. Number three, John Q. Public asks, why in America do we sue each other at the drop of a hat? Answer, if we see our own evil proclivities, we are not going to be so fast to sue our neighbor or our employer. Somebody cuts us off, and instead of honking the horn, we remember last week that we had cut somebody off accidentally. The next question that John Q. Public asks, why has the divorce rate risen from 3% at the time of Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s to over 50% in 1985? And presently, it is hard to know the divorce rate with many, many couples living together in defiance to God's fornication law. Thus, 
with the divorce rate so high, why would any couple want to have children? For children want their real mommy and daddy to work things out. But the real mommy and daddy can't work things out if one of them sees themselves as sweet and wonderful. For the norm of iron sharpening iron becomes a one-way street. When the sweet and wonderful spouse is sharpened, the only thing that is sharpened is the writing utensil to fill out the divorce papers. This is devastating to not only the children, but to the nation for a moral family that is forgiving and a principled family is the primary building block to the stability of a virtuous nation. We could go on and on, but let us dig a little deeper into the cause of the divorce rate. Let us review. We can see ourselves as sour or sweet and sour or sweet and wonderful. 